Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I think we can start. I think we're close enough to three o'clock. The oil market, I think it's preparing for Ukraine to last for a decade. You can kind of see it the way the curve has developed. A little less backwardation, definitely some upside in, in, you know, some volatility in the beginning of the curve, the early part of the curve. Market may be wrong, but I think that's what it's preparing for. If Russian oil is sanctioned by more widely, in other words, you can't bring Russian oil to the U.S., you can't bring it to the U.K. Well, you can bring it to the U.K., but you have to phase down, and by the end of the year, you have to be finished using Russian oil if you're a U.K. refiner. It's unclear exactly how Europe will follow the U.K., but I think they're, I think with all the publicity and all the horrible stuff Russian military is doing in Ukraine, it'll be politically impossible to not follow the UK's lead. The oil that's produced in Russia will then move elsewhere, India, China, and it will be moved by, by trading firms. And, and I think it'll make a difference in the price of oil because the logistics of changing oil that would otherwise be coming out of the Black Sea or the Baltics or pipelines into Europe, you know, are significant. But eventually those, those logistics will be solved. And that's kind of the way the oil market is looking. On the gas market, LNG actually calmed down a little. You remember early, earlier, you know, LNG got to $60 or something in Europe. Now it's hanging in there at 30. I think part of that is seasonal. Spring is coming. You know, it's the second week of April, the first week of April, I guess, but next week is the second week of April. So it's kind of calming down because you don't use as much gas in Europe or as much gas here or as much gas in Japan, Korea, and China, you know, in the summer. The Europeans would have a great deal of difficulty completely cutting themselves off from Russian gas. But it's clear that they're going to bid for LNG cargoes, you know, in that $25, $30 range. They're going to bring them to Europe. The regas facilities in Europe, which are throughout Europe, although Germany now is green-lighted three regas terminals, which they'll build as quickly as they can. Normally, you hold LNG in a cool tank, but I think what the Europeans are going to do is they're going to change liquid into gas, take the gas, put it in storage, and take more LNG in. So they're going to be darn sure that by the beginning of uh, the winter, say next October, they have their storage chock-a-block full. Interestingly enough, the storage of more than half of the storage in Europe is either leaked by Gazprom the Russian gas company, oh, but the European countries having sanctioned Russia will just ignore 
whether gas swab owns it or not, whether they leased it, and they will fill it up and it's a gas storage and they will have control over the over that gas storage. What the futures market appears to be in gas appears to be assuming a a nine, ten year, you know, no ceasefire, no no agreement. It just it, there'll be, you know, some kind of a line. Both sides may call it the militarized line, but as long as we continue to supply javelins and stinger missiles and and drones and, and, and whatnot, the Ukrainians will continue to try to push the Russians completely out of the country. And the Russians, of course, will resist. And so it'll it'll just go on and on and on and on. And so the sanctions will go on and on and on and on. I think that what we uh, will wind up with is just a kind of a redo of the way oil and gas move. But I do think that it's likely that it'll be priced at a higher level than pre pre invasion. I would have said $65 as an average price for WTI for the next five years. I think you have to take that up at least $10 now, maybe more. I guess I would have said 350 average for the next five years. You have to take that up at least 50 cents to $4. We produce about 92 or 3 Bs in, in this country of gas. The LNG exports are 13. They're absolutely at capacity. The capacity is hard to increase. It takes two years at least, even if you're adding capacity to an existing facility to build it all. And probably three years if it's a, a new facility, you know, a, a facility where it, you aren't already operating. And But there's five Bs a day that's being worked on under construction, and I think that all should be on or almost on by the end of 25. By the end of, by, by the end of 25, there'll probably be another five piece a day of contracted for, you know, where, where takers have taken the gas, financing the range and the starting construction. But that's 10 bees of incremental gas. The rest of gas demand is flat, industrial, residential, commercial use, uh, utility use to make power. That's all flat, probably will remain flat question is how much get increased gas supply will there be in the U.S.? Because it's not like the world where the price is determined. I mean, the price of gas now is uh, for nearby month delivery, it's like $6, but the price of LNG is 30 Well, the difference is you have to liquefy it, move it, whatnot. It looks as though uh, a three-year call on gas supply would be a couple of bees a day incremental from the Marcells, which is running 35, maybe a couple of beads a day from the Haynesville in Louisiana, Texas, which is running like 15 or so now, maybe four or five from the Permian, where it's associated gas, and all other areas probably flat. So it looks as though the increased LNG demand about matches the the increased supply. It, supply from the Permian has nothing. Well, I didn't say that. It doesn't have too much to do with the price of gas. It has everything to do with price of oil, and there'll just be more 
production from the Permian. U.S. production peaked at 13 and got down as low as 11. It's back to 12. It'll move up. You know, it might be 12 and a half by the end of this year. The companies that operate publicly are committed to not spending more than two-thirds their cash flow. Uh, their cash flow is going to be much higher. A lot of them have paid down all their debt, so they don't hedge. So they're going to get the benefit of the $100 prices. But labor is so short that even if you wanted to substantially add rigs or frack crews or whatnot, it'd be next to impossible to do. It's just the labor shortage. Is, you get it done over time, but over time would be six, nine, 12 months. So I do think production will increase. Will it ever get back to 13? A year and a half or two years ago, I said, no, we'll never see 13. Well, with the Ukraine and, uh, and, and, and lasting for a long time, I think we will get back to 13, but it might not happen until you know, 23 or four rather than later this year. Impact on the economy, obviously higher energy prices, or for that matter, higher food prices have a disproportionate impact on those least able to pay. And that is going to create even more political unrest. The Republicans, and I might even mention Trump, hopefully he in the rearview mirror won't won't run at twenty four, but the Republicans solution to all this is don't spend as much money, have a smaller government, have energy independence, whatever that means. The Democrats is phase out of fossil fuels, have more government programs to help the disadvantaged. I mean, I think they're both wrong, but that it's on those kinds of issues that the midterm elections will be contested as long as Republicans can stay clear of Trump, like that fellow became governor in, in Virginia did. They'll do well in the midterms. The Democrats' best issue is Trump. In terms of impact on the economy, I personally think that this idea that because the Fed is going to tighten a lot, a, re- a recession is almost for sure, I think it ignores how short labor is how much leverage people have to increase their pay, what that's going to do to personal income. Remember, the individual consumer is 70% of the economy. The individual consumer did pretty well during COVID because there were all these government programs, billions and billions of dollars. That's going to continue in a way because everyone is going to pay more money. And this will help to solve some of the inequality, I think as long as inflation pumps down a little. The idea that inflation is 7% this year and it's going to be 7% next year and 7% the year after, I just don't believe. I mean, just from an energy point of view, oil prices are higher, but I don't think oil prices are going to go up from this level. So, I mean, once once $89, wherever they settle in, is works through the economy, I don't think that's going to be a source of additional inflation. And I don't know that much about the agricultural commodity. Obviously, the world is going to miss wheat from the Ukraine and stuff like that, and commodities from, from Russia. I think that without too heavy hand from the Fed, inflation will get back to not 2%, but maybe 3%. In terms of stock market valuation, cheap money or a very easy Fed for too long to combat COVID, clearly 
increase all asset values, including the stock market. So when you see the long bond, it's Mike and I were talking about this early today, when you see the 10 year bond go up 10 basis points and you see uh, the stock market, especially the, the high value cap companies, the NASDAQ companies go down. That's a trade that's being set up by someone running algorithms. That's not deciding that Tesla's too expensive or NVIDIA's too expensive or Apple's too expensive. That, that's some kind of a trade that's set up. And the people who are putting that kind of trade on are generally going long bonds and short the stock. I think what is going to happen is that trade of being long bonds is going to start to really not work too well at all. People are going to lose money doing that. And a repository of value, in other words, where can you put your money if you don't believe in gold and you don't believe in Bitcoin? Where can you put your money? I think U.S. companies with big margins and, and margins you can protect are the place you put your money. Now, you may get them at a cheaper price. Now, so to kind of turn it over, we're about halfway through the 30 minutes, to turn over one of the companies that I've got on my list to focus on is Microsoft. Why Microsoft? Well, it's big. So as because people don't decide to sell Microsoft or Amazon or Apple or NVIDIA, they do it with ETF. And, and so Microsoft, no one's making a decision that Microsoft is too high. It's just, you know, when you sell the ETF, they've got to raise money and that's what happens. Microsoft, if you think about you know, you pay for a license, say, the office suite, $150. I mean, if they increase their price to $170, $180, you're not going to not pay it. I mean, kind of a perfect business to kind of cope with the fact that, that there's inflation in the economy, labor costs and cost you more. And, and it's vital. It's kind of the version, you know, people say, well, you, you, you buy a company, you buy Kellogg's, it makes cornflakes, but that'll help you with inflation. Well, I think the modern day Kellogg may be, may be Microsoft, but well, with that over to Mike, because I don't want to, I don't want to, I've been filled the air with words for 15 minutes. So I, I want to turn most of the rest of the half hour over to Mike. So over to you, Mike. Sure. So I, I agree with your sentiments on Microsoft. It's a position we've had for a while now. And I, like you said, nobody's going to stop paying for Microsoft Word. That's a, it's ingrained into business, even with there being near free alternatives offered by Google and some other companies, it's just too much to switch over. So uh, there, there's a lot in software actually that have that kind of natural mode. Salesforce also is a company that has that kind of lock-in. If business is going to continue to get done, it's going to get done with these core tools. They're not going away. You'll try to find ways to cut costs elsewhere. From there, Hunt, do you want to talk about Tesla and Elon Musk and Twitter? Yeah, I, I, this is a very brief introduction. I've got a Twitter file and I'm going to get up the curve on it. And I'm going to have a serious look at it. But what does Elon Musk acquiring just under 10% of Twitter mean? The reason he doesn't go more, I think, is if he buys more and changes his mind, and he doesn't wait six months, he has to remit the profits back to the company. So expect him to stay at 9.9%. Uh, apparently, he's been added to the board. 
the business, Mike's going to go into in a lot more detail than I, I can barely master. But the business, from my quick look, looks not bad from a cap flow point of view. Elon Musk is not for everyone's take, but he probably is going to really help the Twitter management. Now, Twitter was founded and managed by uh, Jack Dorsey, who also had Square, which has become Box. There is a follow-on manager there now, who I'm sure will appreciate having Musk there as a stockholder and on the board to, you know, offset some of the rest of the board, including Dorsey. And with that, I'll have more by next Wednesday. I'm really going to uh, dive into this thing. But uh, with that, I'm just going to turn it back to Mike. Perfect. So I'll give a preview and we'll go deeper on next week. But I, what I thought was interesting, well, it's first of all, why would he do this? Well, one reason is obviously that he's sitting on a lot of cash. If you remember last year, he posted a Twitter poll and said, should I sell I forget what the number was, $10 billion worth of Tesla stock. And they said yes, and then he did it. So two things come out of that. One, he's sitting on a bunch of cash and he needs to do something with it. Two, he is a power user of Twitter. And if you think about it, it'd be hard to imagine how Elon Musk would have generated the amount of free publicity and public notoriety, whether you love him or hate him, without Twitter. He says things that not everybody agrees with. It's therefore controversial. People write about him. People love him. People hate him. He's got a cult following. He was able to produce all sorts of random products through the pandemic, everything from shorts to a flamethrower to his own tequila, and people buy them up. They sell out immediately. Very interesting how integral Twitter is to his personal PR presence. So in a way, he's got a vested interest in the future of Twitter. And he's been pretty publicly outspoken about protecting free speech. So I think he comes with that sort of perspective to the board that may um, be underrepresented at the moment. Looking at Twitter, remember we did this analysis a little while back and looked at a bunch of companies and said, what if we invested at the average price in the first year since the IPO and how would that return look today? So I did that analysis on Tesla and Twitter and no surprise, Tesla, the return is very good. It would actually be a 56% IRR, which is incredible considering the time period. I think they IPO'd in 2011 or so. So it's been quite a while. Twitter, on the other hand, who's been public since I believe it was 2012, or 13, you would have lost some money, negative IRR, right, right around up 0%. So a couple of things to kind of pull from that. One is you could probably assume that Elon Musk is a better capital allocator than the team at Twitter. And then if you dig into Twitter a little bit, it kind of had a great start. It, it grew revenue very quickly the first two years and then fell off a cliff. 2016 and 2017. I thought that was kind of interesting because those were the years where Facebook really started to do well. And what we saw at Twitter was essentially no features in the product and 
a big hesitance to change anything or actually even do anything for that matter. Meanwhile, Facebook built one of the best, probably the best advertising engine in the world. And it was incredibly effective, especially for e-commerce people. So you saw their profitability just soar. And as you would expect now by hearing about how poorly things have gone at Twitter, Facebook did incredibly well during the pandemic and Twitter kind of meh, <laughs> you know, in, in comparison, it's just kind of, kind of rolled along. So no surprise, the stock price today, even after Elon's run up the stock really hasn't done anything since the beginning. So in a way you could say that it probably can't get much worse. And in a way you could also say that there's so much room to just copy what Facebook has done that they could just do a better job of monetizing their base. So uh, just a few minutes ago, I did some quick math. And so in 2021, they did $5 billion in revenue and they have something like 330 million users with, with the average user spends, it says 158 minutes a month. And I calculated that out and that basically comes to a monetization rate of approximately 50 cents per hour. So it's not that good at at monetizing user time, which is essentially all it is. It's just like television or any other media business. If you're selling user time, it's up to you as a business to figure out how to monetize it. So I think there's a lot of potential upside. And I think that if Elon's able to be effective in making change, it, there could be some, some really great things happening. I don't know, though. I, my, my perspective is that there's probably a lot of problems internally at Twitter. And by just putting Elon on board, I don't, I don't know that it actually causes change. So I, I think it'll be an exciting story to watch. We'll get into Twitter next week. Let's, let's have a quick chip update. Let me lead off. Mike's looked, I've looked at Intel. It's trying to ever misbehave in a way Russia's misbehave. That would just be terrible for Taiwan Semiconductor, also terrible for Apple. If, if you own Intel, it'd be like a seesaw. What was bad for Taiwan Semiconductor would be good for Intel. That being said, even though they admitted to these machines from ASML and have a very appealing story around the CEO going to work for uh, Intel with just like a little more than a high school degree and winding up, you know, being a, a leadership position by the time he was 30 years old. I think that there are two big problems with it. One is they're going to spend all their cash. Well, three problems. They're going to spend all their cash building facilities. You've seen the one announced in Ohio and the one announced in Germany, and they were already doing one in Arizona. So any company spending all their cash flow is automatically, that's not what we want to own or acquire new, new positions in. Second thing is, will they be able to build the leading edge technology so that People use them as a foundry. So AMD uses them and Apple uses them and NVIDIA uses them like, like they use Taiwan Semiconductor. That's, that's a hard challenge. Will, you know, will they be able to do it? And then third is the history of chips. Now, Pat Gelsinger in these interviews, which are very appealing, 
is asked about that, it, it shows the cycle to you put in all its capacity and you make too many chips and then all of a sudden chips are discounted. I mean, it's been the history of the chip business. And what Pat Gelsinger says is, well, that's true, but it may be different this time because of, you know, I forget what he called it, but the Internet of Things, you know, the fact there are going to be so many chips and everything, that demand will just power through uh, the surplus of capacity. I just can't get there. Now, I wouldn't have spent as much time on it. I had just taken Mike's advice. Mike has consistently said, no, I just don't get it. I, I don't know that they can do it. And with that, over to Mike for the rest of the two, three minutes we have left. Yeah, the, the execution risk is very high. And then even if everything goes perfectly, if we don't have a big falling out with China in the next couple of years, assuming we get to some level of oversupply, Intel has to compete with Taiwan Semiconductor at the same node for the same product. I think it's very likely that Taiwan Semiconductor wins that on price every single time. And that means Intel's the high cost player in the market, which you know, that's not a good place to be. That's, that's global foundries, which has been a terrible business up until now, because we're in a huge shortage of chips. So I, I think it's an exciting story. I think that if I were on the board, I would have tried to get Pat Gelsinger to come in as well. But I also think that it's more than just the guy. It takes a lot more than that. And yes, Intel has an amazing history, but not unlike Twitter. They've been underperforming for quite a while. And I think that it takes longer than, you know, three or four years to turn that around. That's my perspective. Good. With that, everyone stay healthy. We're, we're starting to see some spring. As the Wednesdays go on, we'll be able to compare notes with Mike and our weather will be almost as good or maybe even some days better than San Diego. So we have that to look forward to. With that, everyone take care and stay healthy. Talk next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.